You are now listening to the High Def Performance Podcast, hosted by Mitch Harb and Zach Smith. I am totally good with it. Yes. Cool. So we're joined by Dr. Sue Kleiner. Uh, once again, you know, we had so much fun on the podcast with you last time that we decided to make this a, uh, a uh, recurring theme. So have you on and, and help, you know, you've got so much knowledge in the nutrition, sports nutrition uh, space that, you know, we just think it's, it's something that we want everyone to have access to as well. So we're happy to have you as a recurring guest on the High Def Performance Podcast. So um, welcome back. Oh, thank you. It's just fun to be here. Yeah, we're going to have some fun. We're going to discuss some cool stuff that's going to help a ton of people out with with things that, that everyone's trying to do right now. And, you know, one of the things uh, is, you know, people are working out from home. They're, they're having to modify their workouts, but they're still trying to put on muscle and, and gain muscle mass. You know, we work with a lot of athletes that that's their number one goal is like, how do we increase lean mass? How do we decrease fat mass to a, to a healthy um, level? You know, obviously there's certain levels too low where you start to get problems as well. Um, but let's, let's talk a little bit about muscle building. You know, we use for our training with our athletes, you know, we use the, the foundational three things in fitness to gain muscle. You know, we use eccentric stressing, uh, metabolic stressing, and then um, uh, progressive overload. So, you know, that's how we create hypertrophy within the muscle. But we know there's, you know, you can't really get hypertrophy if you're not eating correctly. So what are your dietary keys to uh, someone gaining lean mass or muscle mass um, when they're working out? So going sort of from, from big to, to narrow, um, nothing means more than calories. And so energy is key. That, and that's sort of, if we look at, like from the base of the pyramid, <laughs> what's going to matter the most, starting with having the energy to build the new muscle. And you just, if you don't have enough energy, you're not going to be building enough muscle. You're not going to be building new muscle tissue. That's for sure. Um, so getting enough uh, quality calories in and, and then defining those quality calories, there's several characteristics. One is in order to build muscle, you have to do increasingly challenging exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not maintaining, you're not just doing the same workout. In each workout, it's getting harder and harder. It is a high intensity demand. And so that high intensity demand requires carbohydrate. And so while you can make fractional gains on a lower carbohydrate diet, and we know we've seen that, there isn't a a strength trainer in the world that doesn't know you have to fuel that training with carbs. And so um, there's a, a number of different ways to accomplish that, depending on each individual their gut, how they can eat, you know, all those kinds of things, but it requires carbohydrate fuel to make those maximal lifts and, and or even to sustain, you know, moderate um, uh, weight lifts for long periods of time, repeated lifts, that's going to require carbohydrates. And then of course, the protein as the building block for 
the tissue itself, but also as uh, the way that we catalyze um, muscle protein synthesis and, uh, and the balance between, between muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein breakdown as a factor of the training protocol itself, right? So eccentric exercise, lots of muscle protein breakdown, and we all feel that. Yeah. <laughs> 24 hours yeah. after that yeah. workout, <laughs> you're, you know that you're sore. And so, so the, the key to, to gaining mass is to keep taking two steps forward at least for every single step back in protein building. And we want muscle protein synthesis to be ahead of muscle protein breakdown. And so that requires not just protein in general, but what doesn't require it, you can do it. Like, you know, and this is where the confusion and the nuance comes in. Um, you know, as long as you've got enough protein around over time, you will gain, make those gains. But if you want to maximize or optimize your time frame, then there's key amino acids, leucine in particular as the branch chain amino acid that kind of is the accelerator to muscle protein synthesis and with adequate amounts around every time you eat not just that moment in time where we think of nutrient timing after exercise. So, so it is certainly energy, then the macronutrients, so the, the fuel to do the exercise, which is the carbohydrate, the fuel to, to gain the mass is, is total intake, and then the protein to, to move, the, and the amino acids to move the muscle protein synthesis forward, and then of course, all the micronutrients and everything else to keep your body as healthy as it can be. So it is working on all cylinders all the time. Yeah. yeah. And that's, and that's something that I think, uh, I think two pieces that people miss are you got to be able to train hard. So what is going to allow you to train hard? Right. And then also you got to feel good to train well and recover. So what's going to make you feel well. Right. Cause I think people just think I just got to drink a protein shake. Yeah. I think, I think you've overestimated some of the, some of the trainers out there. Cause I know a lot of people that are doing workouts like on no carbs or trying to just go completely ketone based training stuff. So, you know, I think that's an important message as well is that like people view carbs as such this, as this negative thing that's like going to make them gain weight. Like that's become the new enemy is like, Oh, I can't have carbs. I can't have carbs. But you know, if, if you're really trying to go for performance, you've got to have it and, and you've got to have enough of it to be able to fuel that high level training. You know, otherwise it's kind of like training at high altitude versus training at low altitude. You know, you're not going to be able to get that high, high intensity at high altitude just because you, you know, you don't have enough oxygen. So, you know, if you, you know, that's what I compare it to. If you don't have enough carbohydrates, you just don't have enough fuel to get to that really high intensity, that 95% one RM and above that's going to get you that, that top level performance during those certain workouts, you know? A hundred percent. And the, the key is here that, that we're talking about what is the evidence, not um, an N of one or a subject of one and their individual story, which is actually hard to believe because they tell you it's just their story. So there's no evidence behind it. They may have their pictures, but we don't know what they actually did do. 
And if it works for one person, then marvelous for them. But the data are, are abundantly clear that physiology has not changed in the last 40,000 years. We actually still need carbohydrates to do high intensity exercise, no matter how much someone boasts about doing it otherwise. Yeah. Right. Now, sure. uh, going back to what we talked about on best ways to gain muscle, what for like a, a, a the athletes out there listening, what is a recommended, like what's a good muscle meal? Cause I know you talked about leucine too. Some people are like, well, where do I get leucine? Right. So right. what's like a per, some, some meal examples. And obviously if you go read the new power eating, you got plenty of those examples, <laughs> but talk about some of those now. So um, there's, there's several keys here. And one is, as I said, it's not just the timing pre or post exercise. It is, um, it is the packages of protein separated ideally all day long. And so if you can only eat two meals a day and that's what you can do, then do that. You know, I don't want to recommend something that's impossible for people. However, when you have choices and some flexibility, having at least 2.2 to 2.5 in the data vary a little, but believe me, you're not getting exactly anything like that as you're cutting a piece of meat or, you know, you're getting, everything is estimated. But we're looking at around 2.2 to 2.4, 2.5 grams of leucine each time you eat. Um, depending on the food that you're eating, the um, you will get an array of uh, comp compounds or of amino acids uh, as components in your protein. The highest percentage of leucine in an animal food is found in whey protein, which is why we love whey protein. It is 10% leucine. And so when you take a scoop, which today is usually somewhere between 22 and 25 grams, you've got somewhere between 2.2 to 2.5 grams of leucine. Um, and so that's super easy. Uh, dairy products will be somewhat close to that, meat products slightly less. As you get into vegetable proteins, they will be significantly lower in leucine. And so you may need, for instance, if you're using a rice protein source or rice and potato or something, the first thing you want to do is find out from the manufacturer how much leucine is in a dose of this product. If it doesn't say it on the label or somewhere on the website, you want to call them and it may, you may need 40 grams to get 2.3, 2.4 grams of leucine. So doesn't mean it's bad. It just means you need more. And so there are options that way um, as far as mixing a beverage. If you're looking at a meal, uh, again, if we're thinking about typically the good dose of protein is going to be around 25 to 30 grams of protein to get that nice nugget of leucine of an animal protein, 25 to 30 grams. So that's going to be around four ounces. It isn't like, so it isn't half a cow, you know, it's about four ounces, maybe five ounces, if we think seven grams of protein per ounce of animal protein. Again, yeah. if you're using a vegetable protein, you need more. And so, so in putting a meal together, that's your protein amount. Every time, 
breakfast, lunch, dinner, maybe one or two snacks in between, however you get that in, a mix of beverage or shake, and as much real whole food as you possibly can. And then adding in your, you know, always eating a plant-rich diet. And so um, starchy vegetables, whole grains, uh, your regular vegetables, fruits, nuts, seeds, throughout the day, you're gonna be, you know, sort of getting in all your healthy fats, all your food groups. Yeah, I think that's that's an important note too, because like, for example, for me, and, and I find this actually with a lot of my clients, and more and more, it seems like lately, people are lactose intolerant for, for whatever reason. And like, I'm lactose intolerant, so I can't have any any dairy products. And like, that's where I struggle to get the right type of protein, because I end up having to eat pea protein most of the time, because I can't have whey. It'll just, mm-hmm. not, just not a possibility for me. So um, I like, you know, meats and you said so so nuts and seeds and stuff will have will also have leucine in it for for people well very little because you know depending on the choice of the nut or the seed the yeah. volume that you have to get in right you it may be way beyond you know cups of sesame seeds you know i mean we're looking at at um uh, so so you can mix the, the entire source doesn't have to be from one food so you're looking at a meal so you might have you know a handful of of uh you know some kind of high protein nut like a like a peanut or um you or soy nuts or something like that you might have uh if you're using all vegetable protein you may have some uh tofu Uh, you you have protein in your whole grain and so looking at you know what's my total protein intake, uh, for all vegetable protein, you are going to need usually closer to 35 grams of vegetable protein, 35 to 40 grams. And again, this is, this is very ballpark. We're not looking at a specific composition, but it might be nearly twice as much to get that amount of leucine. Some plant foods are higher or lower in leucine. That's the nature of the plant proteins. They are not complete except for soy. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And um, you mentioned the amount of protein per meal there. And then I'm also, I'm also kind of one of those, those weird guys as well. I don't eat breakfast. I used to think it was really, really important. But I started to realize that every single time I ate breakfast, for some reason, my stomach was just not ready to eat in the morning. So I do intermittent fasting um, just until like 10 or 11 uh, a.m. It's not really long periods, but it makes me feel a ton better. I find that my energy is better like late at like the 3 or 4 p.m. thing uh, or time period. So uh, what's your recommended amount of protein that, you know, we've got numbers that we give out to our clients. What's the amount of protein that you recommend people get? Like, is it uh, like a point, like a grams per pound of body weight kind of thing? Like, are you trying to set people's goals for that? So, yes. I mean, if, if you're trying to gain um, a, a minimum of 1.8 grams per kilogram body weight, uh, depending on what's happening uh, with the individual, are they, you know, are they getting an abundance of protein? And so 1.8 to 2 grams per kilogram um, is enough. Or are they also sort of hovering on a little bit of a deficit? Now you can make muscle gain 
when you have a small deficit, and there's, I think Brad Schoenfeld has shown that, there's, there is research, and, and certainly any of us that have worked with athletes or, or tried it ourselves know that we've been able to gain lean mass as long as we're not creating an enormous deficit, and that that deficit is not as we go into our training. Mm-hmm. Fully fuel your training, create 400 calories another time during the day of a deficit later on. But, you know, so, so, um, uh, yeah. So then I take that protein and I distribute it throughout the day. And typically when you're looking at, I'd like this package of at least 25 grams of protein, if it's coming from animal protein or a mix of proteins, it will distribute really nicely throughout the day as four or five meals and snacks, um, if you are eating fewer because you're intermittent fasting and you're going 12 hours um, or 14 hours as your overnight fast. And so I would just say you eat breakfast at 11 o'clock, but (laughs) you're breaking your fast at 11 o'clock, you know? Exactly. (laughs) Um, um, It may mean that you're only eating four meals and snacks or three meals and snacks. And so they become more robust. The other thing is you can have more snacks that then have it may be very protein rich, you know, aerocentric. So I know Mitch loves this because he's all about the protein and he's got me doing, you know, I do about 0.75 to 0.8 grams per pound of body weight. Oh, per pound, right. Per pound. So a little bit different than the kilogram. So make sure if you're listening, well, it's the same. Yeah. Kilogram and yeah, we're pretty close on the number. And it's a huge difference. And you know, the interesting thing too, is that when I'm eating enough protein, I was probably 40 grams to 50 grams under mm-hmm. what I need to be in a day. Once I started getting it up, the other thing is my energy is much higher as well. Like I'm not getting sleepy whatsoever, ever. So um, that's been an interesting change that I've just noted. In, so in- what happens there, just to, just to, a little tangent, but why is that? So, so it's because when your protein levels were low and and if you are in any kind of deficit calorically and typically if you added 40 to 50 grams of protein you just added 250 calories you know depending 200 to 250 calories um uh, you you have been using protein for energy and so and when you're in a caloric deficit, your protein need goes up, which is why I said if you are eating adequate pro- adequate calories, 1.8 to 2 grams per kilogram per day, or your 0. 0.7, 0. 0.75, 0. 0.8 grams per pound, that works pretty pretty well. And 1.6, you know, you're we're very we're we're very close. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm doing the 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 pounds to kilogram switch very rapidly here <laughs> i know most most scientists are in like i used to be in the metric system i think it's a much much more efficient system but oh so much easier and, and for, baking, for baking as well for baking as well <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> anyway so um and so so if you are in a caloric deficit proteins gets broken down and used as energy just like when you're in a ketogenic state 
if you eat more protein, you will break protein down to make carbohydrates. So you're really not ketogenic on a higher protein diet yeah. um, because carbohydrate is so critically important. So meaning that you've wasted that important protein using it as energy and it cannot be used for the jobs that only protein can do. Only protein carries nitrogen. And so, so you feel fatigued because you don't have protein doing the jobs that it needs to be doing in your body. And so we need to increase protein to meet our, our energy. It's not, the, it's not the fundamental energy needs, but to meet our protein needs above and beyond the required amount. And so on a caloric deficit, the recommendation is 2.2 or even as high as 2.5. Yeah. Uh, 2.6 grams per kilogram per day, depending on where an athlete is in, in their sort of season uh, and off season and what, what's happening. So under your circumstances, and that is the explanation. And you just added 200 calories a day to your diet just with protein alone. No wonder why you feel better. Yeah, and that, that'll help out so many of like our, our high school athletes, you know, falling asleep in class. Like one time we gave this presentation, this kid was falling asleep. During our presentation, we were like, this guy needs to get more sleep and eat better. And just like, you know, just such a game changer. And, and even just for like our, our executive level athletes, you know, that are like the life athletes who are sitting at their desk at three o'clock and they're just like, I can't get myself to work because I'm just going to fall asleep in this chair. Um, there's a lot you could do as far as like, you know, if you're, if you're able to supplement in that protein, it's going to help you in just so many different ways. Well, that's why Zach says I love protein because every single person <laughs> I've worked with, I don't know a single person. If you don't know how much protein you're getting in a day, I don't know anyone who's just getting it enough in, you know, like right. it's, right. it takes that like awareness. I mean, Zach's a right. perfect example. Yeah. I mean, I'm and a conscious guy. And even when I was yeah. like, Oh, I'm eating enough meat and protein. And then I like actually looked at it. I was like, Oh wait, hold on. I'm actually not, I'm, I'm quite, quite a bit lower than I thought it was at. Right. And, and it really is just systemically better to, to be consuming smaller amounts all day long, this four to six ounces. And depending on how big you are, you know, my big NFL players are, can eat a pretty big portion. Right. So, but the, the, um, you know, in the smaller packets all day long, rather than eating, you know, a little, you know, banana and peanut butter early in the morning and having nothing all day and then an enormous dinner um, and, and eating a pound of whatever protein source you're eating, <laughs> yeah. that, that is not, that's not good for our gut. You know, that's not good for our digestive system. It's not keeping us well nourished all day long. We don't make big protein stores. And so you will lose some of that protein because we only will pool so much. And so, so the small packages all day long, just as we think about, uh, you know, watering your lawn is the best, best thing or watering pots of flowers on a hot summer day. Typically, if you water early in the morning, when you come back in the evening, you have to water again. It's dried up, right? If, if you get a lot of sun. And if you don't, when you, come, when you wake up in the morning, you've got some shriveled plants. Yeah. You were better off to not soak them in the morning, but to give them what they need in the morning and to come back and give them what they need in the evening because they, it, doesn't, it doesn't waste. And so 
And, and it is nourishing that plant all day long. And that's what we want. We don't want to go into these deep deficits. That is, that, that is an obstruction. Yeah. You know, we try, that's an obstacle. Um, and, and it's a really easy one to overcome. We have tough obstacles. I work with airline pilots who are flying for 14 hours, you know? I mean, um, those are real obstacles to figure out, but, but separating your meals a little bit better than you've been doing is, is, a, is just strategizing. I think that happens so much is like someone eat, eat maybe nothing at breakfast or something and then they get busy at work. They go all day long or, you know, they're a kid, they go to school, they don't eat anything. And then all of a sudden they're just like starving. They eat some huge meal at night, but they, you know, they hit so many of those peaks and valleys. And like you said, if they could just take whatever they're going to eat at night, spread it out, it'd just be so much more helpful. To yeah. And, and just to double back on your inter intermittent fasting. So how many hours do you fast? Uh, I typically go like 14 or 15. It's like and the, that, sometimes it goes yeah. 17. It, it, I mean, the data, when we look at health data, we're not looking at gains, but health data, which as you mentioned, Mitch, um, you got to be health. You want to be optimally healthy every day as you go into your training. So there is a lot to be said to putting your gut to rest mm -hmm. so that your body can work on the rest of it while you are digesting a tremendous amount of energy is going to your intestinal system. You want to then, after you're done digesting, put the energy into recovery of the rest of your body for the next day. And so there appears to be, uh, not surprisingly, again, if we look at sort of adaptation, um, we didn't have electricity, lights would go out and you'd stop doing everything, you certainly would stop eating. We didn't have such an abundance of food that you could eat, you know, 20 hours a day. And so we'd have these long rest periods to our gut. And this appears to be a very healthful strategy. I like the overnight time rather than long fasts. You know, occasionally you want to do a full fast that's fine. If it's a spiritual endeavor, I have nothing to say. <laughs> that's, that's your choice. But, but as far as a health strategy, the regular overnight, 12 hours at least, uh, 10 to 12 hours at least, is a, looks like a very, very good strategy. And particularly in our nation, where people are eating all the time, Yep. Um, and all night long, typically, while they're sitting in front of the television, that in and of itself, regardless of the choices of food that you're making, doesn't seem to be a healthy choice. Having said that, for hard gainers, very often, they got to eat at night. And sometimes I have um, um, heavyweight bodybuilders in their, in their gains season where they're getting up in the middle of the night and eating again. And you all who are out there who know that, you know who you are. Um, and sometimes it just has to happen because the time that they're training is extensive and they can't get in calories during those hours in the gym. So, well, so that's what happens. Yeah, and I would say, you know, that's where you get on that spectrum of like the triangle, right? There's health, there's performance, and then there's aesthetics. And it's like sometimes your choice is not going to be able to, to satisfy all three. Right. Uh, what I was going to ask is because that's, that's what I've read and, and heard is 
you know, it's, it's better to, to sprinkle in those feedings throughout the day. But then you're like, but then you want to, you also want to give your, your stomach a break. So I think you, you answered it though. Like the best way to do that would be use your sleep. So what I would do is like, I'm going to stop, I'm going to eat dinner at five. I'm not going to eat the rest of the day. And then I'll, I'll start again at 5am. That's typically what I'll do. And, and that allows me time to um, break down my small feedings. But is there like a specific window in between those feedings that you would recommend like a two hour minimum or, or anything like that during no, the day? No, you know, not, I mean, there's some, you know, that break, not, I don't know, that didn't sound very good. Um, <laughs> you know, there's so many different studies published. And again, it depends on what's the goal. So we know that if gains are the goal, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Even if weight loss is the goal, purely not behavior, not, not, will, not control over what you're eating, but eating in general, it doesn't matter small frequent meals or three large meals doesn't matter however for both behavioral control in weight loss having typically structure to your day um, and knowing your own tendencies some people do better with small frequent meals some people do much better with three times i eat period and other than that i'm drinking water and and I I'm I'm very happy like that. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to gains, as I as I said, it it also depends on how you feel. Very often you get really really hungry when you do lifting exercise. Uh, it is you know resistance exercise really can ramp up appetite. Very different than high intensity aerobic oh, exercise. Yeah. Really different. And right? Because your body's on overdrive, gaining. And so, um, and you haven't done the same kind of workout that suppresses appetite, typically. You may get some appetite suppression immediately afterwards, but it doesn't seem to last very long. So, so again, it's, it's the nature of the individual and how they do best. Um, for health reasons, I like the distribution throughout the day. Um, it, you don't have to have a morning snack and an afternoon snack per, per se, uh, but I like those. I like That's what I do with most of my clients, and I like that distribution. I like to make sure that you have fueled well a few hours before exercise so you're empty. Um, depending on the workout, you may need something going into that workout. Uh, you, sh you, you need recovery. That can be a meal if you sit down directly to a meal because you work out in your garage, or it may be a recovery shake because it's gonna be several hours until you get to a meal, or you may need both just because of volume of calories that you need. So, so sort of it, all of it goes, and the overnight fast, that 5, a, 5 p.m. to 5 a.m., 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., that's a classic in my practice. Um, especially going too many hours longer. For most of the people I work with, it makes it too difficult to get in everything else they need throughout the day. 
because they don't want to just be eating all day long. They need their work time. They need their training time. They need to feel empty enough before they train. Yeah. And so many more hours makes it difficult. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I've always done it because if I don't get, you know, 25, 30 right away, like I just don't find my, the hunger really throughout the right. day. You know, right. Make it easy. Yeah, that's for sure. So on, on our previous podcast, or actually maybe this was just while we were having a, a separate conversation, you were talking to us about the studies about the importance of having muscle mass. And we kind of talked about like, you know, even though bodybuilders do a lot of unhealthy practices to gain muscle, they generally, you know, like have higher resistance against certain types of illness and stuff. We maybe just talk a little bit about uh, the importance of muscle mass for people. Um, because I think people, people think about the average person thinks about fat mass, you know, they think about the importance of not having fat mass, but I don't think it's really heavily stated in a lot of places, the importance of having lean mass on the other side. Um, so why that should be the goal for people. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the lean mass is, is a, you know, if you want to stay independent into old age, you better have some muscle mass. Um, you know, we talk about activities of daily living and most trainers know what that means, ADLs, meaning that you can walk up steps, that you can carry grocery bags, that you can take the stuff out of your grocery bags and put it on the shelves in your house um, or in the refrigerator, that you can clean a counter, that you can, you know, take care of yourself physically. And people lose that independence very rapidly as their muscle mass declines. And certainly, you know, right now, we know how quickly muscle mass is declining as people are being either much more sedentary or get sick. And that's the thing. The more, so muscle mass is your metabolic tissue in your body. It is what is keeping everything going. Fat is dormant. Well, it's not really dormant. Fat is actually a highly... Uh, uh, hormonally active tissue yeah. in a negative sense, um, promoting stress hormones and stress hormone secretion, uh, altering appetite control, etc. But uh, the muscle mass interferes with that, number one, does the opposite. Muscle enhances your carbohydrate metabolism, enhances fatty acid metabolism, um, you know, helps you manage uh, muscle protein synthesis and keeps you physically well um, all all day. And so, um, as we get sick, and people are either getting sick with COVID nineteen or they're getting sick with other things, it is it is your insurance policy. It is protection because off your feet in a hospital bed, really sedentary, prone for 10 days, um, the muscle mass loss is profound. And anyone can talk about their loss of energy that they have as they recover from any, any bout of, of illness that laid them flat. And so the more muscle mass you have, the more that's left yeah. based on the proportion that you've lost. And so if you don't have much, you don't have uh, a safety factor. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's, that's such an important point. And, you know, as a PT, that's why I like the importance of early mobilization of patients. And like now we're starting to see even during COVID-19, like 
they're they're actually getting people up on ECMO, which is never you know like a cardiac. Wow. Where like that wasn't the case, but like that is just that's the emphasizes like wow this person's hooked up to five different machines that are keeping this person alive, and they think it's important enough to get them on their feet and walk them around because uh, atrophy does happen so fast. You know we measure uh, people's longevity by the speed that they walk at, so we we time the timed up and go in physical therapy. Um, I did I published a paper on. Um, on the importance of like uh, sit to stand, so time sit to stand to 30 seconds, how many reps you can do, it's it's very high, highly correlative to a lot of different things. Fall risk, and we know that you know if you fall and you're elderly, you're basically your risk of, of death is is much higher from falling mm-hmm. than anything else. Um, and I always like to give people um, my anecdote of muscle loss, even in a young healthy guy in college at 20 years old, I got a knee surgery where I was non-weight bearing on my right leg and I was in exercise science at the time. So everyone was really interested in, in testing this because uh, I was working with some exercise physiologists who were working on protocols for protein, uh, protein supplementation and supplementation in general for NASA. Um, because that was the big problem was astronauts are losing muscle mass at such a rapid rate that they wanted to maximize, you know, people's ability to hold on to it. So they were kind of mm-hmm. studying what was going on with me. And after just six weeks of non-weight bearing on my right, on my right side, I lost three inches in circumference around my right quadricep muscle, uh, just that quick. And I was eating just as much. I actually gained weight during that time cause I didn't have as much activity. Um, but still just that, like that rapid loss, but I had enough obviously, but you know, if I didn't even have that three inches to lose, then basically I just become, and, and I used to work in some, uh, neuro rehab facilities and you just see people essentially just become like their leg is just a bone. It's just the, right. the right. Humor, it's just the tibia and they don't have any muscle mass and they literally don't even have enough strength now to roll themselves over in bed. And now you've got a whole other set of problems, but this applies, like I said, to athletes as well and being able to hold on to muscle mass. Cause if you do sustain an injury and you decrease your, your, uh, your activity, you can lose muscle so much faster than you can gain it. So you've just got to be protective of it. Right, exactly. And, and it, it will come back, but it is that period of recovery that if you still have enough, as you said, you have enough left to do the work yeah. to recover. Whereas if you have almost nothing left, then, then recovery becomes a much longer grinding uh, period of time. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, one, another thing you mentioned, so you mentioned the importance of muscle mass, but then it's the importance of reducing inflammation. So can you talk about certain things that are, uh, you mentioned the term inflammation. Can you talk about certain things that are we can do to, to help reduce that? Right. So inflammation is this great term that I that has, is sort of newly coined. I remember when we very first started to talk about sarcopenia back in the 1980s, um, which is loss of, of muscle mass, right? So, so moving from that to the concept of inflammation, and, and, and it is the concept that it is systemic chronic inflammation that ultimately enhances the aging process, that it's not the inflammation post-exercice. It is the, and and not the inflammation from cutting your finger and letting it get inflamed, but it is internal inflammation going on because we 
consume certain foods that promote inflammation or we lack certain foods in the diet that help um, fight inflammation. Um, the body has a natural anti-inflammatory, many natural anti-inflammatory systems. And the nature of inflammation is that it is meant to flare up, let's say, after a hard workout, a hard lifting session, that flare up immediately after exercise is your immune system responding to the damage of the tissue and the sort of recognizing something foreign coming out of that damaged tissue. And so you get an inflammatory response. That's your immune system. And that's the first step in tissue repair, recovery, and growth. That, that the body recognizes something, there has been too much of a stress. We need to repair this and recover bigger, faster, stronger. So we don't have this happen again. That's why we gain muscle. That's the sort of teleological explanation to how our body works and how we survive. And so um, in, in the case of chronic inflammation, that has happened damage um, through, through um, maybe a viral infection, bacterial infection, some kind of damage, if we say the gut, something to the gut lining, something has happened, and nothing is stopping the inflammation. And it, it's an old term called dieseling, where where it, in old cars, <laughs> I had one when I was in college, that, that you'd turn the key off and pull it out, but the motor would keep cranking. We used to call that dieseling, and you'd have to turn the car back on until all the gears would sort of come together again. I'm not a, a motorhead, so hard yeah, to yeah. explain it. And then turn it off, and it would turn off. But something would be misfiring, and it would continue to misfire. We used to call that dieseling. So that's what happens in your body, that it just, nothing is turning off that cranking of inflammation. It becomes chronic, and then the body responds with a stress response, and then we get increased cortisol levels, and we get all these other things that happen. And so that leads to an aging response. Yeah. How can we diminish that? We can diminish that by eating foods that are what we know of as anti-inflammatory. So foods high in sulfur, those, those donate Disulf the uh, to the disulfide bonds that are critical as part of immune function and protein metabolism, and so uh, brassica family foods. We think of the smelly vegetables: broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, Brussels sprouts. Um, those are foods that are high in sulfur. Onions, the allium family, garlic, all critically important, and they help um, support immunity, um, both for anti-inflammation, but as well as cancer fighting and, and all that, you know, kind of thing. Um, the interesting thing, and I'm going to jump right into it, is whole grains. And so grains have gotten this horrible reputation. And I'll be doing a whole talk on grains um, tomorrow morning for the north central region of NSCA. And if you go to my uh, Facebook page, you'll see the links or you can just 
look up North Central Region NSCA it, conference. Was, it's was it recorded and reposted. I I actually don't know, gotcha. um, but well, I go we'll, on we'll, and we'll get our viewers the link to to review yeah. it. If yeah, if they haven't seen it. So, and it's not just me. I mean, it's a it's an amazing conference that Lane Norton is speaking on Game Changers. Uh, Dr. Joey Antonio is speaking on proteins, um, and then of course all these marvelous exercise scientists and specialists. So, my talk is about it's not the grains' fault. Yeah. It's what we have done to them in industrial farming. Uh, in breeding, industrial farming, in in production, manufacturing, and then in in cooking and baking, and that grains by nature are profoundly anti-inflammatory. When they are eaten as whole grains, you don't have to eat grains that have gluten. There's a host of grains that are gluten-free if you're looking for that, as well as you know things that we know of as seeds, but are are in the grains food family, such as amaranth and quinoa. Um, and then, when we are making flour, what we're doing to the to the grain, and we're not getting whole grain, even if you're purchasing 100% whole grain flour, unless it's stone ground, it is not 100% whole grain. It is white flour with factors added back. Yeah, and then. And then um, the act of baking bread and the use of long, slow fermentation, the sourdough method. Um, and by the way, sourdough method does not have to make a sour product. It's, I'm not talking about San Francisco sourdough. I, sourdough method is a, is a technique of yeah. using a fermented um, uh, starter for your bread. So, and, and all of that, uh, creates, actually diminishes anything pro-inflammatory in the grain that people are talking about. And they are truly experiencing. I'm not telling you you're not experiencing it. You are. The explanation is not cutting out grains. The explanation is choosing the, the best grains and the best food that you can and the best flour that you can and understanding food and thinking of flour as a fresh ingredient. So we are going to farmer's markets. We are purchasing all fresh produce. We're going to the beekeeper to get our fresh honey. We are making sure our fish is as fresh as it can be. We're getting eggs from chickens in the backyard. We're doing all this fresh stuff. And then, and by as we see the evidence of the empty flour shelves in the grocery store, we are purchasing flour that can be that is months and months and months old at least, and then it spends years on the shelf in our homes. And so, but, but flour should be a fresh ingredient. If it doesn't need to be fresh, you're not getting a wholesome food. And yeah. so, so um, the Global Burden of Disease Study, and it's the, I know we're coming, we're bumping up on the end here, but I wanna really drive home this point. There was a very large global study looking at all different things that are that cause the burden of disease worldwide, looking at dietary risks in 195 countries from 1990 to 2017. In our country, um, uh, they well and well just in general, um, they found that of course, not surprisingly, improvement of diet could potentially prevent one in every five deaths globally. We even know that 
that, that coronavirus patients are suffering greater because of obesity and chronic disease, yep. which are di all completely diet related in most cases. But the most fascinating thing is that the number one problem causing morbidity and mortality in our country in folks 18 to about, I think it was 45 or 50 years old, lack of whole grains in the diet accounted for more than 50% of deaths and 66% of these, um, this burden of disease attributable to diet. So it's lack of whole grains. And then of course, too much sugar, too much sodium, and also lack of fruits in the diet. So, so, so there are things that we say don't do, right? Limit this, avoid this, don't eat this. Actually, there's this wonderfully positive message, eat more whole grains. And I know people are afraid, but there's a ton of people who can give testimony to the fact if we just, and you don't have to eat bread, you don't ever have to eat bread. <laughs> just yeah. eat whole grains. And it is three servings a day. A serving is, depending on the grain, a third to a half a cup of the cooked grain. People go to Europe who cannot eat bread in the United States. And they say, I can eat bread like crazy with no problem when I'm in France. Let's I hear say. that all the time. Yeah. Right? Why? Because they use a sourdough method. Yeah. They're not using just yeast. Now they may add a little bit of yeast, but they are using a sourdough method. And they, you know, they're using white flour. God forbid a French baguette should be anything but, you know, cloud white. But they're still using a, a sourdough method. And so, or or a, a fermented dough. And so it is that reaction, that's a biochemistry that happens that makes an enormous difference. So that's, I'm going to cut it off. Because <laughs> I, I mean, if we, if you've got a little bit of time, we've got a little bit extra time as well. Oh, I do. I do. Two follow-ups to that. Uh, because first of all, you make me want to bust out my bread maker and start making bread again. So I'm going to have to get some of your recipes and, and figure out the whole grain thing. But how about people that aren't going to make their own bread and is there any, first of all, is there any bread brands that you found that do this method? And second off, what are the other grains? If, if people aren't going to eat the bread, what are like maybe two or three grains that people should pick to eat that you would consider good whole grains? So starting with the whole grains, all of them. And actually, I have a great list. I will send it to you guys and you can post it. I'll be, it'll be on my presentation tomorrow. There's so many ways to get them. Even locally, the local, you know, our, our local grocery stores carry today numerous different kinds of grains. And, you know, brown rice is a whole grain, right? I mean, you don't have to go far to get brown rice. But variety is such a fundamental key concept for good nutrition and it's variety within food groups and so the variety of grains so um so i i have them marked which ones are gluten-free which ones are not what's really a, a, a variety of wheat like farro and emmer and icorn those are all wheat varieties spelt mm -hmm. um you know so so there's lots of of options and you can get them on amazon although I don't know about today what's on Amazon. We have wonderful local um, grain farmers uh, and, 
and and also flour mills locally and so um as far as if you are not going to get your to bake your own bread which you don't have to um there are some very good options so great harvest mm -hmm. is an is is a franchise that's very easy um, look at and ask them for their 100 percent whole grain ask them for that or something close if 100 percent is just over the top for you mm -hmm. then then talk to them you know this is where you ask just like you talk to your fishmonger or you talk to the, the the farmer at the at the farmer's market or even just the produce manager at your grocery store you ask questions this is another place to do that mm -hmm. um they use a sourdough starter at great harvest in one or two of their breads and so that's going to be really key for people who who may get stomach upset and would like to see can i go back to bread yeah um uh, Grand Central Station. So Grand, our, our Grand Central, Grand Central Bakery, not station, Grand Central Bakery um, works in partnership with the WSU uh, Bread Lab. Uh, if you have not visited that website, visit it, the WSU Bread Lab. You will learn so much. You will be astounded with the story of grains and, and, and the sort of rejuvenation of the grain economy and farming in this country and becoming more local, more regional. Mm. Plant breeders who bake are who are at the WSU Bread Lab and, and they're breeding no longer, you know, we're breeding away from all purpose, right? Um, all purpose has, has no purpose in many respects. And, like and so, slogan. right. <laughs> and so think of flour as a fresh ingredient and and go to the wsu washington state university bread lab website and read everything you can there um so grand central bakery uses in a number if you go to their website they will say what breads carry what grains and how they are baked and are they using a sourdough technique uh, Essential Bakery is very, I mean, we have so many wonderful local artisanal bakeries, but every bread that looks gorgeous is not necessarily made with yeah. number one, whole grain, uh, number two, a, a, a stone ground flour, or number three, a sourdough technique. Yeah. There are many different techniques. And so talk to the baker. And, yeah. and as I said, while they may not have every loaf made that way, they likely have one or two. So two questions on the bread is, I'm guessing not, but if a bread says it's sourdough, does that mean it's good to go? Or is, that, is there different levels of a sourdough bread, right? I've been really- right. I, I actually have not gotten to the point where I've looked at, so I guess this is what I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna say this off the top. These these breads that are in the grocery store that have are in plastic bags, uh, a soft, fluffy bread that says sourdough is not what we're talking about. Okay. Yeah, and then and then okay. same thing with like if because well I'm I'm processing about getting a sandwich in a little bit <laughs> and I'm like I'm like if it said it was like whole wheat right. Is that probably different 
level. So, right? so right. So when you go into the store, so many people think they're doing the right thing and they pass up that Wonder Bread white loaf and they look at that hundred, it says whole wheat. Well, first of all, if it says wheat bread, all bread is wheat bread. That doesn't, that's a marketing gimmick to kind of, it, it's a, it's a bait and switch sort oh, yeah. of. People yeah. think a oh, wheat bread is 100% whole wheat. Absolutely not. All bread is, unless it's not made with wheat, is wheat bread. Yeah. Okay. So if it says 100% whole wheat, then I would still look at the ingredients and make sure that that is actually what was in it. Now, if it's a bread that is industrially processed, it's on that shelf with all the double plastic wrapped breads, that is still likely going to, if you get a lot of intestinal upset from bread, um, it may be gluten, it may not be. It may be all of the additives that are put in that bread to get it to rise and out the door in two hours, okay? Yeah. When we bake at home, it takes a minimum of five to six hours if all you're using is yeast, mm -hmm. not a sourdough technique, okay? So we are, you know, at least five hours. And so, so those breads have, you know, so many additives that are likely the cause of, of gut upset. Enzymes are added, huge amounts of yeasts are added. Yeast is good in small amounts, not so good in large amounts. Um, plus multiple other factors antioxidants and all kinds of things to color the bread um, and the wheat. Um, it, there are things added by farmers in, in the industrial farming method. The wheat itself is not as highly nutritional as these wheats that you will learn about when you go to the WSU Bread Lab. However, it's a good start if it doesn't upset your stomach to yeah. get the 100% whole wheat. Understanding that the way we make commercial 100% whole wheat flour in this country, 94% of the flour in this country is on steel roller mills. And whether they're making white flour to bag or whole wheat flour to bag, all of it is sheared to become white flour. And then the white flour is taken and the, some of the components, not all of them, but some of the components from the whole wheat flour are added back and mixed up and bagged as 100% whole wheat flour. Yeah. They particularly don't want the things that are going to spoil and go rancid. When I was a kid, whole wheat flour, you couldn't keep for more than three months on the shelf. It would spoil. Today, it never spoils. I couldn't figure that out. Why does whole wheat flour not spoil? It should have fats in it really healthy fats, but yeah. they either eliminate them out of the whole wheat flour or they denature them and heat them so that they don't go rancid in the package, which means you don't benefit from it. So, so that's the benefit of stone ground flour, which Bob's Red Mill. Yeah, is, I like Bob's. Right? So that is stone ground. That's employee owned. Um, it still is going to have typically, it, they do date it. So you want to make sure, you know, that it isn't nine months old. And, yeah. and once we pass this period of time, we'll go back to having nine month old flour on the shelves. Yeah. So, so those, it's stone ground. And, and 
I will be sharing tomorrow uh, um, a map. There's a website of a, with a map of all the mills around the country that are doing stone grinding. Wow. Yeah, no, I think that's such good advice just for the average person that just easy switches that you can make when you go somewhere and get something like just choose. It's not you have to eliminate it. You just have to choose the better option of it. And I think those are the easy wins that people can start with. And then those kind of wins add up and build into, you know, further and further. And maybe someday you'll be making your own bread because you've gotten to like it so much. So like you know, this is the, yeah, exactly. This is the first step. You just have to take that step and, and, and switch out the white bread and just get something, you know, just pay a little bit closer attention to the ingredients that you're, that you're putting into your body. Do, do we and again, you don't, you don't have to eat bread, which is for some people too much of a leap, right? <laughs> They're just, so, so they eat, eat the whole grain, eat the, who eat and cook the whole grain. And you can buy those in the grocery store and you know, you can buy spelt, you can buy farro, you can buy einkorn, you can buy, as I said, brown rice, you can buy quinoa, you can buy amaranth. There are so many whole grains that you can buy and cook and are delicious and lots of recipes. And I swear to you, when you add it into your diet, you will feel so much better. This is feeding your gut biota, making the biome, the environment so much healthier. It is an anti-inflammatory act and, and anything less is pro-inflammatory. We're gonna send out that list. We'll send it out in our newsletter and then we'll drop it on the social media. We'll post it on the website. So if you get that list over, that way people can, can get that and then they are armed with something that will keep them healthier and uh and yeah i'm gonna start eating more of it (laughs) this morning for breakfast i had my eggs over pharaoh yeah oh and it's not it's not the egyptian pharaoh it's (laughs) (laughs) f-a-r-r-o i was gonna say you're you're breaking up you like it's funny because my coach that i used to work with when i was growing up he's a really good coach and he was so ahead of his time in the early 2000s, he was talking about all of this stuff, spelt. And I'm like, you couldn't even find this stuff in the stores when he was talking about it. He was having to order it from these weird websites. And like, now it's just become such a, a, a more accessible thing that, you know, it's not too hard to find. You just got to look for it. So I think if we can get this list of people, they'll be able to, uh, to find these things in their, in their own grocery store or via their own like local bakeries, which is even better because then you have a right. chance support local business which we know is super important in this time as well so cool i'm happy i'm super excited that we have you on for uh like continual sessions because i think you you're just like i'm excited to the next time we talk because i got already so many questions formed (laughs) we talked about just now so uh yeah so we'll look forward to to meeting with dr sue in the future and then you know go go get her book uh, the new power eating and then follow her at power eats on Instagram and most other social media, right? You're at, at power eating. Yep. Power I, eat. I'm, so power eat power eat. Yeah. Perfect. Yep. And we'll link that up in the show notes again. And then, uh, we'll talk to you guys next time. Right. Thank you so much guys. Appreciate it.